Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week our guest is award-winning journalist and author Janine DiGiovanni, senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. We will be discussing Janine's book, The Vanishing, Faith, Loss, and the Twilight of Christianity in the Land of the Prophets. My conversation with Janine De Giovanni about the plight of Christians in Iraq, Syria, and throughout the Middle East, and her own journey of faith as a conflict journalist begins now. Janine, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with this. You write that, and I'm quoting, what fascinated me as I researched and wrote this book and continues to fascinate me now is how believers manage to hold on to their faith. Now, you have covered so many conflicts, and if I read the book correctly, faith has been a constant for you as well. So tell me about this link in your approach uh-huh. to the region and the communities you cover in the book. Yes. Well, for me, what was really extraordinary was how Christians, especially in Syria and Iraq, held on after the ISIS years. Um, I mean, they have been persecuted and doggedly run down for for centuries, Um, and yet they have remained in their ancestral lands. I mean, the issue right now is can they continue to do this? I mean, ISIS was a blow that was absolutely devastating to the Christian communities. And um, I was in Baghdad in June um, uh, 2014 when ISIS ran through Mosul Um, and basically swallowed up all of the Christian villages running through Nineveh. And the determination of them to basically eradicate the Christian communities, as well as the Yazidi communities and and other minorities, was was fervent. And yet these people held on. And the more I dug into this, and of course, for me, you know, I've been working in the Middle East for nearly 30 years, three decades, and um, I have always been fascinated by Christian minorities um, and their determination and their faith and their their ability to somehow have um, stronger and stronger resilience despite so many things. Um, Yes, I mean, faith is a very curious thing. Why do some people have it? Why do others not? Why are there um, communities that are able to maintain their their very deep-rooted beliefs despite so much? Um, and Andrew, now what is facing them, of course, it's radicalization and each, each of the countries I look at, which is Iraq, Syria, um, Egypt, and the Gaza Strip has unique challenges. But um, there are people that are just determined, like we will remain, these are our ancestral lands, we have been here for 2000 years, no matter the power of the armies or the forces that will try to wipe us out, we will stay. But my worry and the reason I wrote this book is that their numbers are diminishing so rapidly that demographically, I don't know if they will be able to do that. And link it back 
to your personal journey of faith and your coverage of the region and your engagement with these communities, because you reflect on that a lot in the book. Yes, it's a very personal book. Um, it started out, you know, it was meant to be basically I was I spent five or six years devoted to this book. I wrote a book about the war in Syria called The Morning They Came For Us, um, which was published in 2016. And then immediately after that, I wanted to write a second part to it, which would be about minorities, uh, Christian minorities. So when I began it, of course, it was long before COVID hit. And I began my research and I kind of embedded into communities and um, tried to, you know, get as much um, of a sense of why these people remain. But for me, it also awakened a very deep part of myself, which is my own faith. Um, I was brought up as a Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic schools nearly my whole life. And throughout my career and my life, it's always been a very steadfast um, part of my, my core, my inner core, my moral core. Um, while I would say I'm not a, you know, I don't go to church every Sunday. I don't go, you know, I don't follow the, the strict guidelines that say my parents did from not eating meat on Fridays to, I've been divorced, for example, um, which technically excommunicates me from the church. But I, I have an extremely strong belief in God, in my own faith, and wherever I went in the world, um, and you're right, I've covered many, many, many wars. I think 18, I can't really remember, but last count, someone else counted them as 18. I've always found a church. And that even, you know, during the siege of Sarajevo, Sarajevo, of course, is mainly a Muslim city, but there is an extraordinary, there was a sizable and is a sizable Catholic population there. And there's a beautiful cathedral. And even during the siege, when I lived in Sarajevo, um, I would kind of run the gamut on Sniper's Alley and get to the church and kneel and pray along with the other people who were, you know, praying that they would survive this war. And um, I found great solace in that. So wherever I've been, you know, the years I lived in Africa, throughout the Middle East, the Balkans, Asia, I always find churches. And it's also a way for me of connecting with communities because the way I work is on a very um, deep level, I guess you'd say. I mean, I don't, you know, I tend to spend years and years and years on one topic and I like to dive very deeply into my subject. So that isn't like a one-off quick interview. So I'm not a wire service reporter. I, you know, I'm not a blogger. Um, I kind of try to go very deep and that takes time and patience and also trust. So going to these churches, praying alongside these people um, helped me as well. Although there were communities that were more closed than others. The, the community in Gaza, for instance, which is very small, there's only 800 Christians, um, out of a former population, of course, Gaza was entirely Christian until the fourth century. It, that was a difficult, that was a very difficult um, community to penetrate. Um, whereas the Christians in Iraq, I think, were so deeply traumatized by ISIS. And, and even, you know, I spent a lot of time with them, even in the days of Saddam, Saddam Hussein, and in the fall of Saddam, so, you know, these are very traumatized people. And whenever you work as a journalist or as a 
social scientist with uh, with traumatized people, you have to take tremendous, tremendous care. Um, you have to really be unbelievably patient and considerate of what they've gone through and also to not re-traumatize them. Um, and that's a huge, huge factor in, in anyone that reports or works in, in conflict zones, whether they're humanitarians or journalists or think tankers. Um, it's, it's really a way of working. And, and in a way, all of the Christians that I was working with were, were very traumatized. So it, it was a challenging book to write. In Iraq and Syria in particular, many of the Christians you talk with discuss how they had to make accommodations with the governments, including in Iraq under Saddam Hussein and Syria under the Assads to avoid persecution. Now, on the one hand, citizens of all sects and faith had to make their accommodations with these regimes. And on the other, the record is also clear that Al-Qaeda, Nusra, ISIS make targeting Christians as well as Shia and other non-Sunni sects a priority. Tell us a little more about those Iraqi and, and Syrian communities and that accommodation they've had to make and the ISIS and the post-ISIS experience and how they're dealing with that trauma. Yeah, well, I mean, I think first of all, the, let's talk about the deals they had to make with the devil. Um, you know, this was for protection. So Christians under Saddam Hussein, um, of course, um, Saddam had a relationship with them. Um, his, one of his deputies was Christian, of course. And he um, basically felt that if he could get their voting block, he could offer them protection. Because they are a mi minority and vulnerable, you can see realistically how this would work. Much more complicated in Syria um, because of Assad and the continuing war, which is now going into its 12th year um, and, and has been just absolutely horrific. So I found that with the Christian community of Syria, it was very, very difficult. Again, they were difficult to, to penetrate because they were afraid. So they, by and large, did support Assad. Um, they also felt that because he was an Alawite, which is a, you know, a minority of the Shia branch of Islam, um, he would somehow be more magnanimous in his support of them and also, again, be like a, a father figure over them. Um, very, very hard from, you know, I work a lot on human rights. And so, of course, Assad, um, as we know, last week, you know, finally, we've gotten one landmark case in Germany in Koblenz with the um, the um, universal jurisdiction, which is trying to try Syrian war criminals outside of Syria, because of course, Syria doesn't belong to the ICC. So how can these people who are Christian, you know, the essence of Christianity is, is love, um, support a man with so much blood on his hands? And this is the real, really difficult thing I, 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 I grappled with. Um, and yet, if you, I always try, you know, it's, it's very easy to go to these countries and pass judgment on people. Um, but you always have to put yourself in their shoes. Now, I loathe Assad with every fiber of my being and everything I, all the work I've done in Syria has been to document, document his human rights abuse. But if you were a Christian living in Malula, 
and you were extremely vulnerable and you were terrified of al-Nusra and other radical groups, Assad would seem like a protector to you. And the same was true in Egypt of Mubarak. And the same was true of Saddam Hussein. So while there's no technical policy that says that Christians are protected by dictators, I think it's kind of a recognized um, uh, tradition. Um, and one in a sense that if you think about is not logical, but um, if I was living in that kind of fear, um, and, and now, by the way, Christians, let's say in Iraq, are living under fear of, of radical groups like HDS, but also of um, Iranian-backed militias and also of Turkish, Turkish airstrikes. So they really don't have anywhere to turn. Um, which is why it was so important last year when the Pope went to Iraq, which was absolutely, I don't know if you remember that, um, to me it was one of the most moving things I've ever seen because it was the height of COVID, the Pope is frail, um, he was advised not to go, and yet he went. Um, he went, he, he held mass, and I think for those people who had been so embattled and so broken down by 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 COVID, by the ISIS, by the war, by, by their displacement from their villages, by their churches being burnt, um, their crucifixes being trampled upon. For them, it was almost a sign saying, we're with you, you know, you're, you are not alone. And I, I for one, was remarkably moved. Um, I'm a fan of, of uh, Papa Francesco, and I think he is, uh, it was a remarkable thing to do. Agreed. It was an amazing visit. And thinking about all of these communities you document, you talked about Gaza as well, and, and how the populations have, have been reduced because of ISIS, and in fact, a larger trend of migration over the years. Your subtitle is about you know, the twilight of Christianity in the region. And I was thinking as I was reading the book and, and your experiences there and, and the cases you cover, that many people um, may not know uh, the history beyond the recent uh, conflicts and forget that there have been traditions and periods of comity and tolerance among these communities, which have so shaped the positive aspects and the rich aspects of culture in that area. Yes, I was very worried when I was writing it that it would be the book would be seized upon by the evangelical Trump right wing community as proof of Muslims and Christians can't live together, and as or by right wing, uh, you know, the Zionist um, settler movement, especially. Um, I noticed that there were a lot of right wing Israelis who were very interested in talking to me about it. Um, as almost proof saying, okay, see, Christians and Muslims cannot live together. This is, you know, we cannot have these kind of communities. But this is wrong. Um, these people have lived together for centuries, thousands of years. Um, they, they've been neighbors, um, they have worked together, and they are able to do so. Radicalization is something else. Um, there are, you know, radicalization is a small part of Islam or of Christianity or of, of Judaism. Um, so I think that it was, it's really important to remember that let's take Iraq, the mosaic of Iraq, what makes Iraq are the minorities. 
the Christian, the Jewish community, which disappeared pretty much in the 50s and 70s, they were such an important part of Iraqi society. Um, it is heartbreaking that they were driven out, left, migrated, um, their community completely depleted. And we, to lose minorities in the Middle East means that we're turning it into a completely homogenized region which we really don't want for the cultural, the society, for the religious, for the political. Um, we really need inclusion and diversity in, in this part of the world. And so the real worry, and it's really interesting, I was on a call to, to England with um, the Archbishop of Canterbury's people, and we were talking about you know the eradication of Christians in the Middle East. And I said that I've been told by social scientists in the region that it's 100 years, that in 100 years, we might not find Christians in Iraq anymore, given the rate that they are leaving. And um, I was interrupted by a bishop from Lebanon who said, you know, that is an incredibly optimistic view. It's more like 40. So that was really shocking to me. But when you look at the numbers, um, and, and again, numbers for me, people always say to me, what is the percentage of Christians in, in Egypt or in Gaza? Or numbers to me don't mean much because of course the last census was taken in Iraq in the Saddam years, 40 years ago. Um, very difficult to determine now post ISIS, um, exactly who's gone back to their villages, who's migrated, emigrated to Canada, the US, Europe, um, where Christians were welcomed, even during the Trump uh, Muslim ban, Christians could still um, Christian, Arab Christians could still come while their Muslim counterparts could not. So um, I think what we are looking at is a modern day exodus. And I think that we need to put policy into place to protect these people. We need to be aware of it because many Christian communities across America, um, even the evangelical communities have no idea that they're Christian brothers and sisters are in this kind of danger and that they are persecuted and discriminated and suffer tremendously on a daily basis. Um, so that was really part of my motivation to write this book was that I could get it down on paper and then people could never say we didn't know. And um, that's really been the driving force of my entire career. I've just always felt like if I can document war crimes, if I can actually have it down on a page, then there is absolutely no justification that we didn't know. We didn't know there was a genocide at Srebrenica. We didn't know there was a genocide at Rwanda. Well, here, here is the evidence. Here are the interviews. Here are the people speaking. Um, and, you know, the ISIS years for Christians in Syria and Iraq were absolutely horrifying. Um, and it's it really shocks me that in America and elsewhere, Europe as well, people don't know what happened, what they went through and what they're still going through, just struggling to go to church, um, to pray, to live every day in their own faith. So they need our support tremendously. Right about the mixed feelings you had about the US policy under President Trump to try to support and rebuild some of those Christian communities. You just talked a little about how some of 
your work could be inter interpreted or misinterpreted by the evangelical community. Um, these communities obviously suffered under ISIS. The uh, Trump administration included uh, focus support for rebuilding some of those areas, including support for increased migration of Christians to the U.S. You also talk a little about the, the Caesar sanctions in Syria. And uh, you're engaged with so many international organizations and human rights groups and U.S. government officials. What can and should the U.S. and the international community do to reverse the twilight if you think it's possible to do so? Well, Trump, you know, it's really interesting with Trump, as loathsome as he was to me, um, my Syrian friends, um, and I mean the opposition friends, friends who were in the opposition who really were, suffered under Assad, were more Trump fans than Obama fans because they feel that he actually did something. He did have now the whole, um, you know, the conspiracy theorists and the whole um, uh, the chemical gas attacks that so apparently didn't happen. Well, this is complete. You know, these are this is rubbish because what happened in Eastern Ghouta, of course, was a um, Assad gassed his own people. So Trump is an interesting character in terms of the Syria, Syrian war. But what I did not like, and I was working for the UN Refugee Agency at the time, was that people would see good refugees and bad refugees, i.e. good refugees being Christians, Christians who were fleeing their ancestral lands and wanted to come to the US or Canada or Europe, and bad refugees, the Muslims, the, um, the Afghans, the people, you know, uh, fleeing, fleeing um, Africa, fleeing climate change, fleeing economic desperation. And this was my big worry that, you know, by Trump putting in the Muslim ban, which did allow Christians to still come, that it was differentiating. It was, it was splitting the, their, their status as refugees. So this, this was a, wor a worry for me. I was worried that it would be used again by the settler movement in, in Israel, the, the extreme right wing, um, to say that, that Muslims and radicalization was the driving force of all evil in the Middle East. Um, so I, I really had to be careful. Uh, it was, I really felt many times like I was walking on eggs. And the interesting thing is that when I actually finished the research, you know, five years or so, and I sat down with my notebooks, COVID hit. And I was in an isolated village in the French Alps where my, my ex-husband's family, where he's from, his family have come, have been there for 400 years. And um, I was there with my ex-husband and my son and my French cousins who are extremely devout Roman Catholics. So it was a really interesting atmosphere to actually put together the book. And that is what, in a sense, awakened my own faith. And it was COVID and it was scary. And we didn't know, if you think back to 2020, how terrified we all were because we didn't know what was ahead of us. There was no vaccines. We had never really experienced a pandemic on that level since the Spanish influenza. Um, and I wrote it with that kind of a tone in mind, which was fear um, and a kind of humbling before God, you know, and, you know, of, of, of a sort of what, you know, what lies ahead of us. So it, that's, you know, the way in terms of a literary device, how it was written. And that's why it became much more personal than I actually thought it would. 
I mean, I thought it would be a straight kind of academic book about um, Christians in these four countries. And again, I never wanted it to be a book, and I never said it was a book about Christians throughout the entire Middle East, because of course I left out Lebanon, I left out Jordan, I left out the Gulf. Um, there were very specific reasons for this. I felt Leban Lebanese Christians are far more integrated and assimilated within the political, social, and economic system. And I also felt why they have their own massive challenges. It wasn't the same fear of eradication, which I feel uh, is presented to the Christians in Iraq, Syria, certainly Gaza um, and Egypt. Gaza is very unique because the Christians there, like all of the 2 million people there, Muslim and Christian are suffering from a crippling, crippling siege imposed by Israel and Egypt since 2007. Their lives are hell. I just got back um, over the summer. Um, I've spent 30 years working in Gaza. Um, I love Gaza. I'm never, I have never been more impressed by people's resilience to survive despite the most brutal conditions. So within this brutality, there is there are 800 Christians and they are living between Hamas and the Israeli and Egyptian blockade. So they're penned in on all sides. Um, this Christmas, the Israeli government made a big deal of saying, oh, we've given hundreds of visas to Christians to go from Gaza to, um, to Bethlehem for Christmas, but in fact, it's not true. They issued them, but they would issue it to one person in a family, meaning that, you know, they weren't gonna go celebrate Christmas alone. They also suffer from the desperation that every other Gazan suffers from, the electricity cuts, the bomb, the relentless bombing, um, the May bombing took such a horrible toll on the infrastructure and on the people. The post-traumatic stress disorder, which is rampant, the, the hopelessness, the desperation, the um, unemployment rate. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, actually, I have a piece coming out in Vanity Fair this week about the youth in Gaza who are you know, absolutely um, the bright hope for the future. But um, so I'm just really pointing out like each country that I studied was a case study, was a unique case study. Syrians were different from Iraqis, Iraqis were different from Gazans, Gazans were different from Egyptians, Christians, but all of them face tremendous challenges and we really need to protect them through policy, through awareness, um, and through basically just knowing, knowing, knowing that it's happening there. Um, and, and I think that I hope that this book does that. I mean, that's my great hope for this book, that it awakens people in a sense to this, this extraordinarily, extraordinarily um, difficult set of problems facing Christians in, in these countries. I mean, as a journalist and a woman covering war and conflict in the region, what's your advice for those considering a career in journalism? Do you see the business and the skill set for journalists as the same today as it was when you were working these uh, conflicts no, in the field? Not at all. I mean, that is the tragic thing, of course, that we don't have, we don't have the, um, we don't have the resources we had, and we don't have that the output. I mean, 
you know, of course, the Washington Post and the New York Times still have foreign desks, but the magazine world, like let's say, you know, the New York Times Magazine, the Washington Post Magazine, National Geographic, all these places where people like me um, and your wife, you know, had cut our teeth working on foreign reportage and, and war reporting. They just have really closed down or have limited resources to do it. But having said that, I still think it's absolutely urgent and important. And, you know, people have found other ways to do it. I know people like photographers that are working, photojournalists that are working solely on Instagram. That's not my kind of chosen uh, platform, but, you know, there are grants that you can use to do deep dives into countries. Um, universities are doing work. So, I mean, I absolutely, I never, you know, even when I started as a journalist, I met these grumpy older journalists who just said, oh, there's no work. And they, I always encourage people because I think we need to pass the baton. You know, I teach at Yale, I teach human rights there, and I need to train an entire legion of young human rights activists and truth tellers and um, people that will go on the ground and never look away. And that's, that is the essence of our job, never look away. Um, you know, whether it is domestically in the US with the homelessness problem or the voting rights or um, the economic disparity, which is just massive since COVID or whether we're looking at the war in Syria, war crimes or Gaza, um, the restriction of movement. I mean, I think it is essential for us, my generation of journalists and truth tellers and photojournalists and um, economists and lawyers, human rights lawyers to train on the next generation because it has to keep going. So absolutely, you know, my advice to young journalists would be go for it. You know, find a country that you have a passion for, whether it's Africa or, or the Middle East or Asia or wherever, or Latin America and become an expert, learn a language, stay there for a couple of years um, or do it the traditional way and become a stringer for the Associated Press or, um, you know, but absolutely now more than ever, we need journalism and we need foreign reporting. It has to keep going. So no, I'm, I'm a great believer in it still. And as a woman covering conflict in the region, as it, do you find that the business is, is still the same, more accommodating? How do you see the issue of, of gender in journalism? Look, we have much more, we have more women on television, right? But that's just because they want, you know, to have sexy women reporting from war zones. At one point, it became a kind of like cool thing for to have women reporting, you know, from Afghanistan or Iraq. But we also have some really fine um, broadcast journalists working like Clarissa Ward and Jane Ferguson, who are doing amazing, amazing work. Um, I think that as a woman, the sole problem for me, I mean, I never, you know, looking back and, and especially with Me Too, and this is a whole other issue, um, my generation, we were really targeted, but what we did was there was no one to complain to. So we basically became tougher and um, we learned to defend ourselves and we learned how to say no and to fight back in our own way. So we, we kind of, it's not that we kept our heads down and allowed it um, a culture of impunity, but we we kind of were tough, tough broads, right? Um, and we were working alone, 
Um, I'm not a TV reporter, so I didn't have a crew. I didn't have any security. I never traveled with, I occasionally was lucky enough to work with a photojournalist, but usually I was alone. Usually I am alone. Um, and I think the biggest thing for a woman, and this is a very personal thing, is more about having children. Um, I think this profession, and I see it with my, my colleagues at the United Nations or the World Bank, if you work in the field, your best years tend to be in your 30s. That's when you really come into your own. That's when you really are you know, able to, to understand whether you're working in the Middle East or wherever, but that's the years when you should be having kids. And it makes it very, very difficult. My employers um, made it impossible. When I actually did get pregnant, I was like pulled into a side office and told off by my foreign editor, a man who had six children of his own. Um, told off, like threatened that he was going to cut my contract. Um, because, as he put it, I have a war reporter who can't go to war. Now, if he did that today, could you imagine what would yeah. happen? But that was 2004. So I, um, I think that is the biggest issue for women. They have to set, if they do want children and they do want a family, you have to somehow work out the work balancing. And that is the most challenging. Um, not the other stuff. The other stuff, men and women face. We all face danger. We all face getting kidnapped. We all face um, being taken hostage by radical groups. We all face getting blown up by a bomb. That's the same, whether you're a man, a woman, transgender, it, it doesn't, it, but what does face women is when you want to have a baby, if you do want to have a baby, the restrictions put on you because of your traveling ability. Um, so, and I know you know that because I know you have that in your own family, but you know, I was in the Gaza Strip five months pregnant and I was evacuated uh, by, because I was, you know, in medical danger. So it's kind of very difficult for those of us that do this kind of work to, to be told, no, <laughs> you know, now you've got to stay home and now you've got to take care of yourself because we're so used to reporting on other people's plight. Um, very difficult for us to turn inward and, and, and stay home and be cozy. So I'd say that that's a very long winded way of answering your question, Andrew, but I hope it does. It sure does. Janine, I regret our time's up. I have really enjoyed this talking with <laughs> you. Too. I loved reading your book. I encourage all our listeners to do the same. And thank you for joining us today on, on the Middle East. Thank you, Andrew. Happy New Year, everyone. We will return after this break. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. 
As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Al Monitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest, Janine DiGiovanni, and our producer, Beowulf Rockland of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week, and if you haven't done so, Please sign up for all of our podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, whose guest this month will be His Royal Highness Prince Turkiel Faisal Asaud, who will discuss his new book, The Afghanistan File. And On Israel with Ben Caspit, whose guest this week is former Israeli justice minister and peacemaker, Yossi Balin. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where I will be here next week with another decision maker or thought leader in the region. Thank you all for listening. And please keep up with all of the news and trends in the region at lmonitor.com.